So we're in the book of Romans this morning. Starting in chapter 5. So we've been going through this book together for a few weeks. We're in week 7, and if you'd like my notes, they're back there on the table right next to the conspicuous box for giving that I pointed out earlier. And you can have a copy for yourself. You don't have to. It's just if that would be helpful to you, it's there for that for you. Um, we're going to be doing verses 1 through 21 this morning. And just kind of want to point back to last week. And one of the tricky things about preaching through Romans is that every section is connected to the next one and the one before it. And so you're constantly kind of breaking it up in a way that you don't want to, but you have to because no one wants to sit here for 12 hours except for me to hear me talk about Romans, all right? Um, so, so, we, so we always constantly kind of have to reference back to last week. And so if you weren't here last week, I don't want to make you feel bad. I'm just, I want to catch you up, okay? Um, so we've been considering this idea that our righteousness is in Christ. It's not in us. It is counted to us by faith, meaning it's granted to us. If you think of an account, like a bank account, it's, it's, count, it's moved from Jesus' account, which is perfect. His righteousness is in his account, and he moves it over to our account. It's counted to us as ours by faith. So that means that my righteousness is, or, or my right standing with God is completely a decree from God about me. It's something he declares over me. It's done. You are righteous. Okay, that's kind of what, where we were last week. It's not mine. It's not in me. It's in Christ, and it's held by him for me. Okay, and that's great news. It might feel a little uncomfortable because we all kind of want to justify ourselves a little bit. So it really, it puts us in our place in a sense, but it also is, wonderful news because that means that it's not about me and what I do and I can't earn it nor can I lose it once it's given to me because it's not in me at all. So this begs an obvious question about our own experience which I have kind of avoided all this time so far and I'm going to stop avoiding this morning. And the obvious question is what do I do then if this is true? If he has said you're righteous, what do I do with my experience which tells me as a Christian, I often sin and fall short of that declaration. So you say this about me, God, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to believe you in faith that what you say about me is true, yet I experience daily a failure to meet that declaration. So what do I, how do I make sense of that without calling God's decree into question, which would be a bad idea, right? When God says something, it's true. You don't shake your fist at him and say, oh, I don't know, I beg to differ. All right, well, you're a creature from the dirt that he created. You don't get to do that. However, we also don't want to walk around in denial, right? Kind of pretending like the reality of our life is not what it is, okay? So that's where Paul's going to kind of go, not just this morning, but for a couple of weeks. We'll, this will be an exploration for us as we dig more into what it means to kind of live in light of this declaration over us. So let's start here in just the first two verses of chapter 5. There's a lot here just in these two verses. And just pay attention 
to the word therefore. This is a very old, corny pastor joke, but it's a good one, which is when you see a therefore, you ask, what is the therefore? Charles has got it, right? Always the therefore or any variation of that word, right? Just the word for, same thing, right? What is the therefore? So he answers that question right here in the beginning. So look at this, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So the since we have been justified by faith is what the therefore is there for. He answers that right there in the first sentence. He basically just summarized everything we talked about last week in one little phrase. We have been justified by faith. So in light of that, you could say, another way to put it, in light of that truth that that we are declared righteous by the decree of God and it is held in Christ, we are justified and made righteous forever by his declaration There's good news. There's more. This is the but wait, there's more part of the gospel. And it it goes like this for a while. It goes, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's nice to know, right? It's nice to know that I am, like when I stand before God, he's going to look at me and he's going to see righteousness. He's declared it. It's in Christ and therefore it's mine. When I stand before him, I may drag myself across the threshold of heaven all weary and tattered, but he is still going to declare me righteous. That's great news by itself. And then God says, but wait, there's more. It's like the ShamWow guy. Remember him? It's just, but wait, there's more. There's another feature I haven't told you about, right? And that is peace with God. So we have this justification, but the there's another thing that God has given us, which is peace with him. And this is a really interesting word. Peace just means, I think we all know this, free from hostility and anxiety. There's no, no one coming against me trying to destroy me. I'm not in this constant battle, but I also have no anxiety in relationship to God. So he says, peace with God. So I can know that God is no longer his wrath and judgment His standard of holiness is no longer trying to destroy me because I was unholy. I'm now at peace with him. There's no hostility between me and him, and I can have no anxiety. I don't need need to have any worry or anxiety about how he sees me anymore. I have peace. I think there's more going on here when he says peace with God. John Calvin said, called it serenity of conscience. I love that so much serenity of conscience. It's not only that I don't have to worry about God consuming me in the fiery wrath of hell anymore. It's that I can have serenity of conscience. My guilt has been wiped away. I'm free from guilt. That's powerful because I think most of us walk around with some measure of guilt. Some measure, because you know all the stuff you've done And all the stuff you failed to do that you should have done, the people you failed to love perfectly, the the, the secret sins and the public sins, and you have a collection of these things that you walk around with that sit inside your head. You may not think about it all the time, 
but what you do feel, quite often this low-level feeling of guilt and shame that kind of just sits there underneath the surface. And what he's saying is, you actually don't have to feel that anymore. You have peace, serenity of conscience. So all believers have a relationship with God that is completely free from hostility and anxiety. Then he says that we have access. It's another, but wait, there's more. Okay, what does he mean by we have access? The Greek word here is used, it's a very interesting word, only three times in the Bible. But it was a very common word in, in literature outside of the Bible that we can find and read and understand what that word means. I have a quote here from Frank Thielman, who is a commentator on Romans. He describes that word this way. He says, it could describe the access that ships might gain to a city through its good harbor, which is interesting, or the access that the friends of a great ruler might provide for others to their powerful friend. It's the ultimate I know a guy. It's like I know a guy who's the king of the universe. I know a guy who has all power, all authority. He's perfectly holy, perfectly loving, perfectly good. He's the guy. He's the king of the city. And he's my best buddy. I have, and I, I'm going to give you my access to him. So I'm going to open up a door for you to go meet the owner of the city so that you can have the same access to him that I have. That's what Jesus did for you. So it's not only that your slate's wiped clean. It's not only that you no longer have to worry about him coming for you one day and saying you didn't measure up. You also have now have the same access to God the Father that Jesus has. Now, how much access does Jesus have to the Father? He has unfettered, unrestricted access. There is no filter. There is no, you get, go, have to go through the servant's entrance. There's none of this kind of, well, you, Jesus is kind of in a better place, has more access than you. No, you have all the access that Jesus has right now as a Christian that has been granted to you, that has been declared. And it's got nothing to do with what you have earned. The, even that is still in Christ. Because look, you get, don't knock on the door of heaven and say, I met Jesus and he told me I could come. You don't even knock on the door because you have the same access. Does Jesus knock on the door? Jesus lives there. It's his home. It's his place. There is no difference in your access to the Father between you and Jesus. And you can sit there and you can ponder that for the rest of your life and never get to the bottom of it. As you consider, well, hey, is there a scenario in which Jesus would not be welcomed perfectly and completely into the Father's presence? No. Not ever. He and the Father are one. That's what Jesus said. So this is the ultimate I know a guy. It's, I talked about this last week. I referenced the thief on the cross. He said, I, I don't know how I got here. I lived a terrible life. I died justly on the cross, unlike this other guy. And he said I could come. That's the only thing I know. He just told me right before I, I died, I could, I could come. That's all I got. That little mustard seed of faith and that declaration from Jesus was enough. It's all he needed to get him into there. That's all he needed to be granted full access. And you might say, if you're an older brother type, well, that's not fair. 
I've worked very hard to appear very Christianly in my life. I should get more access than the guy who was a criminal and a scoundrel and had a horrible reputation, did terrible things his whole life, and then was killed according to the law, and then he just skates in at the, just at the last second. Yeah, that's how this works. Because it's by grace through faith, not by your works. All right, I think we've <clears throat> squeezed as much out of those two verses as we can. Let's move on to verses 3 through 5. It says, not only that, okay, that's Paul's way of saying, but wait, there's more. <laughs> but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out or poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Rejoice here means to express an unusually high degree of excited confidence in something. Sometimes it gets translated, and probably if you're reading the NIV right now, I think, I think it's, if I remember correctly, it says boast. But boast is a tricky word because we tend to have negative connotations about boasting. But that's the idea. It's not like just happy. It's happy and super confident. So he says we can rejoice. We can be exuberantly happily confident in our sufferings. It's like, wait a minute. That doesn't sound... Why, why are you bringing that into this? You were just talking about access and all this fun stuff, and, and now you're talking about suffering. Well, this begins to enter into the question of how is it that you begin to do righteous things and not just be declared righteous like it's sort of, uh, well, you're righteous, but we'll just not deal with the stuff you do begins to answer that question. So there's a process here, right? You see this progression from suffering to endurance to character to hope. There's a progression in that sentence that you can easily graph out as you see in the handy slide that I've put before you this morning. So let's just talk through the progression. Think this through. And this, this maps right over your life. You're going to see it. It is exactly how your life goes, okay? So first we have when we suffer, we learn to endure. So suffering produces endurance. Endurance is the capacity to bear up under difficulty. I mean, doesn't everyone want that? Well, we all know people that have this ability to endure in faith and joy and just be under like a tremendous load of suffering. And this is true in Paul's day. Like This is right before you started having the Roman government burning Christians at the stake. And then it just got worse and worse from there. Okay, So he's speaking into a place of tremendous suffering that's sort of, there's been rumors of it that's been happening on like a social level. It's about to amp up into unimaginable suffering for them. But we can all relate. We're not suffering like that, but we all know what it means to have trials and difficulty in life. To have really hard things happen to you that you cannot bear by yourself. Every human being experiences that. And what he says is that we can actually, in the middle of that suffering, we can rejoice, not because we, yay, we enjoy suffering. That's, cra that's a crazy person, right? Like, nobody goes, yeah, give me some more suffering. What he's saying is, 
just in spite of the suffering, you can rejoice because you are confident that this is not for nothing, that this is producing endurance, the ability to withstand suffering. But wait, there's more. There's a, the, the arrows keep going, right? So the suffering produces endurance. What does endurance do? Endurance produces character. Character is genuineness, or we could say testedness. It's what you get when you test something thoroughly so that you know what it's made of at its essence, at its core, as its its most fundamental essence. What is it? And so you test it until you figure out what it's actually made of. It's what's underneath. It's when what's underneath is consistent with what's on the surface. It's when your insides match your outsides. We can all look at each other, and we can make, wrongly, we can make judgments about each other. You seem like a really holy person. You seem like a not-so-holy person. Just based on kind of the external stuff that we all have control over. We can present a certain face to the world. And sometimes we can, if you're really good at it, you can change it depending on who you're around, right? You can sort of shape-shift depending on your environment. But the real question that God has is, well, what's really in there? What's underneath that facade, that surface that mask and that's what character is character good character is when your insides match your outsides well how do you get there because i don't i don't know about you but i find that i don't really even know when i'm doing that i'm not i'm not aware half the time of when i'm pretending to be somebody i'm not the only way you get there or maybe we could say one of the main ways you get there is through suffering you suffer and you endure and it puts you under pressure If God ever asks you a question in your heart, hey, do you have an anger problem? Don't answer. Well, if you're going to answer, say yes. I probably do. But that's like a warning, like you're about to find out. Like you don't really know if you have an anger problem until what happens? Something hard happens, and you get under pressure, and, and your environment begins to press down on you and press down on you and press and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze until out comes anger. And you go, where did that come from? You know the answer to that. It came from you. It came from inside. The thing inside came outside. And congratulations, now the outside matches the inside. It's kind of gross, but that's what happened. And you get to say, oh, yes, God, apparently I have an anger problem. Or whatever the sin is, right, that we're talking about. That's just an example. This is what this endurance produces. As you hang in there. You don't quit. And you say, God, why is life so hard? Why is there so much pressure on me constantly? Why, why, why? That you say, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to have confidence that this is going to produce endurance, that I'm going to stand up under it. And as you stand up under the weight of that thing, you get your character transformed. And this is what we want, right? We want the good stuff to come out when we get squeezed. We don't want gross stuff coming out. I'm trying to avoid a gross metaphor here, all right? But you get the idea. But wait, there's more. What does character produce? Character produces hope. That's the good stuff. Hope is just looking forward to something. It's a very simple word. As you look ahead and you think, something good is coming tomorrow on the horizon it's a forward-looking excitement 
about what's coming. And you know what it's like. Every human being knows what it's like when hope goes away. It makes the present a very dark place. And what happens to your ability to endure is it goes away when you have no hope. What he says is this character that comes, when God works out, begins to work out this character stuff in you, so your insides match your outsides, then what gets produced in that is hope. What's the hope in? In this case, it's looking forward to the time when the righteousness of our actions matches the righteousness of God's decree, when the, our character gets fully resolved. Again, the rejoicing comes not in, yay, I like suffering, because that's weird, right? Nobody does that. Rejoicing is, I know this is going to count for something, and my hope is that, that somewhere in the future, I don't know where it is, but somewhere in the future, this is going to produce life. And I'm going to look at this and go, praise God that I suffered. And you will thank him for doing it because you'll see what it produced in you was eternally good stuff. The thing you really wanted above all was for the outsides to match the insides and that what's inside is actual righteous deeds. I want to, do, I want to respond to life and difficulty in other people and to God with an instinct of holiness. Where I don't have to restrain myself, where no one has to say, you know, you really need more self-control. That's heaven, isn't it? When you no longer have to worry about self-control because what your heart wants is what God wants and what your heart wants is righteous and good and holy. So all of this is because, he says, at the end of that, those verses we read, is because God has not simply given his love to us like a gift. He has poured it out into our hearts. It's like emptying the bucket. Like however big we can describe God's love bucket, right, which is infinite, but we're human, so we've got to think about it somehow, right? That's a massive amount of love, infinite love. He has emptied it out, poured it out into your heart completely with nothing left poured it out, all of it. It's extravagance. But wait, there's more. Verses 6 through 11. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We've already covered who the ungodly is previously, which is everybody. Okay, Every single one of us. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, what's the therefore? <laughs> we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now you may have noticed there's kind of a parallelism there, which is, means we can make a fun chart, all right, to help us understand all those words. Right? So we, he says, we were still weak, and while we were still weak, Christ died. Okay? Then he says, we were still sinners, <clears throat> And while we were still sinners, Christ died. Repeats the same idea. 
Then he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So he's essentially making the same point three times in a row to make sure you get it. We did not initiate this relationship. Is while you are in a state of being an enemy against God, a state of being a sinner, not being righteous, while you were lost far from him, against him, unreconciled, unholy, ungodly, in a state of being a sinner, that's when he died for you. He, that's who he was looking at when he died. He was not looking at you in your purified, perfect state going, wow, Austin's going to have some real potential. So I'll die for that. No, he looked at you and me and Austin in your broken worst state. He took a freeze frame of your worst and he said, that's who I'm dying for. Before you had any unction, any desire, any faith whatsoever to pursue him and choose him, he chose you. He looked at you as they say, he looked down the corridors of time hanging on that cross and he saw you at your worst. And that's when he said, you're mine. Well, that's a whole different thing. That puts some shape around this idea of pouring out his love into your heart. We were bound by weakness full of sin, actively working against God when he died for us. He did not die based on your potential or based on your good effort. There's also a promise here, which is as if we were declared righteous in our fallen state, how much more likely is it that our hope will not be in vain, the hope we've already talked about? When Jesus returns and wraps up this age, we will not receive wrath, but we will be perfected. That that day is coming for you and me. The day is coming when that perfection, that, that you will want what God wants, and you will not be sort of carrying yourself around like a burden on your own back. Do you ever feel that way? Like there's this monster inside that you carry around everywhere and it's constantly trying to ruin your life. And you're saying, leave me alone. Shh. And you feel this, this burden. That's going to be lifted. Look at verses 12 to 21. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's basically beginning to end. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a mouthful. But what's he doing there? Again, I have prepared a handy chart for you. He's making a comparison. And he makes several statements about this comparison between Adam and Christ. And he goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, all the way through there. Saying, in Adam we have one thing, in Christ we have another. And he's just comparing them, okay? And when you put them next to each other, it makes more sense. So he's saying, through Adam, Adam sinned, and through him, that one man, came sin into the world. And along with that came judgment. But through Christ, the other one man, in his paragraph, came redemption. He redeemed that sin, and he brought and he gave justification instead of condemnation. So there's like two open doors, Adam and Christ, two columns, two categories, and two different things happening coming out of them. So you have Adam and Christ. Verse 12 says, sin and death came through Adam, and there's no parallel for Christ there except in the next verse, uh, next section, verse 18, where through Adam came condemnation. So sin, death, and condemnation, and through Christ comes justification and life. So instead of death, we get life. Instead of sin and condemnation, we get justification. All right? Verse 19 says, in, in Adam, Adam made many, many people sinners. Adam, is, his, his face is on the wall somewhere behind the desk like that guy. Right? Made many sinners, but through Christ, many made, were made righteous. See the parallelism. Through Adam, sin reigned in death, and through Christ, grace reigns, leading to life. That's how he goes through that whole, and you can just map that right over those, that paragraph. So all human beings are born in Adam, and people often get upset about that doctrine. Well, that's not fair. I was born, I didn't even, before I even did anything, you're, you're, I'm born in sin. Yeah, it's terrible, but you can't have it both ways. Because the answer to that is you're also, you can be born again in Christ. Through one man, you're cursed, and through the other man, you're given life. All human beings are born in Adam, and this Adam column is our default state. Okay, that's what we call original sin. Your default state out of the womb is to be in the Adam column. But when we are declared justified by God through faith in Jesus, we are picked up and moved, not by your own power, but by the power of Christ, you were moved from the Adam column to the Christ column. Woohoo! That's the gospel right there. That's good news. You just got moved over from column A to column B, and there's an eternal difference between the two. This is not just a promise of being declared to be righteous. It is that we will act righteously. You will reign in life with Christ. Not only is God's decree of righteousness held in Christ, but your impulse to do righteous things and flee from unrighteous things is held in Christ, all of it. This is that word salvation that he uses multiple times. It's a junk drawer term for the whole enchilada. It's not just your justification. It is also your sanctification. And it's, and it's the power of the Spirit to do the things God put you on the earth to do. It's everything in the New Testament is in this word called saved or salvation that Paul uses. 
So he's, he never separates the two out like you get one and then you get the other. He says it's all one thing, and it's all of it is in Christ. This is the book of Galatians. This is everything Paul ever says about any of it is it's all in him. It's never, ever in you. You're never going to be able to stand there with your chest out like, look what I just did. It will never, ever happen because all of it is in Christ. All of your salvation is in him. What I find is that most Christians understand on some level, I think, that their initiation into following Jesus is all by grace from God. And we're super grateful that he declared us to be righteous. And we like get that. And yes, we need to be reminded of it, but we kind of know it. I don't know if you can become a Christian and not know that on some level, right? But also what I find is that most Christians think that they are justified by grace, but then the rest is mostly up to them. This is how we live. Thanks, God. I'll take it from here. That's how we live. So now I gotta, I gotta, okay, now that I'm in, I have to show my gratitude by, by earning the rest. I gotta shape myself up. I gotta get my act together. And I'm gonna try really hard to do that because I'm on my own at this point. He gave me such a gift. He let me in. He saved me. This is the words we use. We use the word saved wrong when we say it that way. God saved me and I owe him now. Therefore, I'm going to do some good stuff. And then shame rushes in when you fail and you sin. And you say, well, you're, I can't believe you're in gratitude for what God has done for you. And we feel guilty on Easter because we look and we hear the story of the cross we watch the passion over and over and over again, and we feel awful, and we say things like, it was my sin that held him there. And it's true. But we leave out the rest of the gospel when we just say that. Those lashes on her back were all the sins I've committed. Oh, woe is me. I'm so ungrateful. I should try harder, right? That is not what Paul ever says. He says, all of it is in Christ. It starts with your declaration, but your growth in him, your growth in righteousness, your growth in doing the good stuff and avoiding the bad stuff is still in him. It's the work of him through you. We often describe those two columns, the Adam and the Christ column, as two ways to live. And I think that it's true to a point, but it also misses the point. I think it's the wrong way to look at it. It's really two states of being. It's not just two ways to live. If you remember Jesus talking with the Pharisee, the, one of the head Pharisees, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, and he tells, Nicodemus is inquiring, like, what are you, what, what's your deal? You're making waves. I'm interested in what you're teaching. Explain this to me. And Jesus says to him, you have to be born again which is a weird thing to say, okay? It's become a Christian catchphrase, but it's a really weird thing to say, and it's completely true. He is describing the reality that Romans is describing here. He's saying you need to be remade. It's not just you need to, be, need to upgrade. You need to be Christian 2.0, and you're 1.0 right now. You need to just upgrade, a little, a little tweak, a upgrade here and there, some, some better attitudes, maybe a little less 
sin here, a little less sin there, and you'll be fine. No, no, he says you need to be remade. That's how Jesus himself described it. Reborn. You need to be born of different stuff. He says born of the spirit, not of the flesh. Paul says it again in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He has been recreated. It's interesting how that's what everybody wants to do today is recreate themselves. And the only way to do that is through Jesus. So when you move from the Adam column to the Christ column, you're recreated into a new state of being. You're not the old thing anymore. You're not made of the same stuff anymore. You are not the same person. I often feel like it would be fun, maybe a little culty, but so we don't do it, but if when you became a Christian, you changed your name. I've known a few people in my life that have done that. That's appropriate. It signifies what actually happened, is you are now a different person, and you may sometimes act out of character and do the wrong thing, but you are acting out of character. You're not being yourself when you sin as a Christian. You are being someone else. You're faking it. That is the false you. The sinning you is the fake one, and the real one is the righteous one. That's what Jesus says. And how do we know it? Because it's in him. It's not in you. So, question. Are you struggling with yourself? It's an obvious, a dumb question. Of course you are. We all are. Do you have that serenity of conscience that Calvin referenced when in his commentary on these verses? I mean, real serenity. I mean, don't raise your hand <laughs> if the answer is no. That serenity of conscience cannot come from you and your effort. You'll never get there. The only way to get that is to recognize that even my conscience is in Christ. So we're going to explore this more next week, but for now I want you to consider the grace of God, not only in drawing you into relationship with him, the place we all began, as Paul puts it in Galatians, you know, what's wrong with you that you would think that the same spirit that got you in would not continue and bring you to the end. It's all the same thing. The very, very same grace that brought you in is remaking you into a person that does righteous things. And we grow in this by drawing near to Christ and then loving him with our obedience, which is where the rest of this goes. So why don't we stand up together and I want us to pray together. <clears throat> Following Jesus is not without effort. It's not without hard work, and it's not without working hard on yourself, but it's all about do you do it alone or you do, do, do you do it, that's hard to say, do you do it in connection with Christ? That the way you change is you draw near to him. If you're wrestling with yourself over some issue in your life, the answer is to not go off by yourself and work on it and then come back. The answer is to draw near to Jesus and say, I'm not going to be ashamed to come. You already know me through and through. You know all of my weaknesses. And so I'm drawing near to you 
instead of running away from you so that I can try to impress you with my goodness. You will never get there. And so what I want us to do this morning right now is we're going to worship together with one more song before we close is just simply, as the theme has been this morning, take your, and last night, it's interesting, God's really speaking to us, is take that stuff that you're wrestling with, like the real stuff, the stuff that you know is really tripping you up and making your life harder. The stuff you're, you would be embarrassed for someone to find out. Take that, and instead of going off in a corner by yourself and trying to fix it on your own, my precious, instead turn and bring it to him and say, here it is, it's gross. It's real gross, Jesus. But this only gets fixed in you. It does not get fixed in me. And so I'm bringing it to you. This is not mine. It's yours now. This is not who I am. This is not who you say I am. Who I am is righteous because you have declared it to be true. And this doesn't fit with who I am. And I'm giving it to you. And when you do that, you deny the devil his lie which is this is who you really are. And you bring it to Jesus. And in the nearness to him, your intimacy with him is where the freedom is. So I'd like to pray for that. And then let's worship. And I just want to encourage you to to do that the best you know how as we sing together, okay? So Holy Spirit, I ask you right now to give each one of us the serenity of conscience that we so long for. Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to to pinpoint the things that you want to change and transform and redeem. And would you give each one of us the courage to come to you with it instead of going off on our own with it. To recognize that even this, even this thing that is so hard and so difficult or so gross and so shameful. Even this is in you and not in me. You paid for this on the cross. This thing is, we are giving it to you. God, give us the courage for that. God, help us to be honest with ourselves and with you. God, I pray that this morning not one person would leave here without a sense of peace in their heart having been reconciled with you and transformed by your spirit. In the name of Jesus.